Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to John chapter 19. John 19, we'll begin in verse 25 this evening. We come this evening to the final moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. We have looked at His time upon the cross closely. We did that together last week. The first week, uh, we, we went in a little bit of a different direction based upon the text, but last week, we focused intently upon Jesus Christ on the cross, went to some parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and understood some of those elements. Today we finish the account. We left Jesus Christ, as it were, on the cross last week. He has given of Himself in becoming a man, humbling Himself. He has given of Himself in life, having no place to rest His head, He testified. He has given of Himself in scourging, being bruised for our iniquities, as Isaiah 53 describes. Now Jesus Christ will give Himself in death so that we might have life. And as we look at this passage this evening, we're going to see three observations from from the final moments of Jesus' life and the first moments of Jesus' death that will help us. That will help us understand how we ought to respond and how we can lead others to respond to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. First observation we see this evening is in verses 25 through 28. We see your Savior's care. We see your Savior's care. Look at me beginning in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to his disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour on, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Jesus hangs upon the cross, as we pick up in verse 25. Standing by the cross, John mentions some women. He mentions Mary, Jesus' mother. He mentions his mother's sister. This is most likely uh, the mother of James and John, Salome. He mentions Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And he mentions Mary Magdalene. Mary must have been a popular name at that time. To contemplate the grief of these women is an effort in futility. We can understand it a little bit from what we learned in Luke 23 last week as these women wept and mourned as Jesus Christ bore His cross and then traveled on His way to Golgotha when He turned to them and said, Weep not for Me, but mourn for yourselves. We recall that passage. But to understand what particularly Jesus' mother must have been going through would be very difficult for us. However, there is one passage in the Scripture that gives us some insight 30 years earlier or so, probably closer to 32, 33 years earlier, we recall as Mary and Joseph brought the young child Jesus in to the temple in Jerusalem, there was a man there named Simeon. 
And Simeon blessed this child Jesus and his mother. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, the Scriptures tell us this, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon prophesies of this child that he's set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. And he tells Mary, Yea, and a sword shall pierce thine own soul also. Prophesying of the grief that she would have to go through at watching her son be crucified as an innocent man. Well, here we are at that moment when the sword pierced through the soul of Mary. The moment she watched her beloved son, who is God's beloved son, die a sinner's death. In the midst of the cruel agony of the cross, however, Jesus speaks in verses 26 and 27. He beholds His mother standing by the side of the cross and near to her, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We've identified this disciple as John, the same John that wrote this epistle. And he speaks to his mother in verse 26, and he says, Woman, behold thy son. And then he looks at John, and he says, Behold thy mother. As the eldest son of Mary, Jesus was officially requesting that John be the one to take care of his mother. Generally, it would have been a responsibility that fell upon the oldest son. And he was officially delegating the responsibility of caring for his mother to this disciple whom he loved, to John. Now, there's debate over the force of this command. We know Jesus had brethren. He had brothers. Many speculate that John's or Jesus' charge to John was temporary simply because Jesus' brethren were in Galilee, that perhaps once, uh, once everything was accomplished and Jesus Christ was buried and John was taking care of Mary, at some point there would be a, a transition of the responsibility of caring, from her, caring for her excuse me, from John to Jesus' brethren, his brothers. I do not believe that's to be the case for a couple of reasons. The first, in verse 27, it says, And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own. It says from that hour, not for that hour. I believe we see in the text itself that this is a continual process. But may I remind you as well, the time of year in which this crucifixion took place. The time of year in which the crucifixion took place was Passover. There are three feasts in the Jewish calendar, where all the men in Israel are required to attend. Those feasts are Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Well, here's the Passover feast. We know from earlier in the ministry of Jesus Christ that His brethren did go down to these feasts. You recall 
The Scriptures told us that Jesus' brethren were going down to the feast and Jesus said, I go not yet up. And His brethren came down and the Pharisees asked, well, where is Jesus? And, and they said, He's not with us. And it says that Jesus came down later. He came down afterward. He came down secretly to the feast. So we know His brethren went to these feasts with Him. If that's the case, then there would be no reason why the authority or the care of Mary would need to be delegated because His brethren would have been there in Jerusalem. And so we see fairly clearly that what Jesus Christ is doing here is He is yielding the responsibility of caring for His mother and placing it upon John. Now it is impossible for anyone in this room to speculate the kind of agony Jesus Christ was going through at this moment. Hanging on a cross, nails through His hands, nails through His feet, the scourging, the pain of the wood against all of the wounds that were on His back. More than that, it would be impossible for anyone in this room to understand the weight of the sin that was placed upon Jesus Christ's shoulders at the time of the crucifixion. But what is more significant is what we don't have to speculate over. And we covered it last week, though this is the first saying that we see of Jesus Christ on the cross in the book of John. There have been two others thus far. Luke 23.34, He asks God to forgive His Roman executioners. Luke 23.42 and 43, He pardoned the thief who exercised faith as He hung on the cross. And His third speech, the third thing He says, is to ensure that His loved one, His mother, is taken care of. Three statements, all three of them focused upon the care and blessing of others in His time of greatest personal agony. Three statements that revealed the heart of God to be an absolute loving heart for the world. We use many words to describe our Savior Jesus Christ. As we consider all of what He is, let us never forget how much your Savior cares. How much He loves this world. Your Savior cares. Second, consider your Savior's gift. Verses 29-37, through the Scriptures tell us, Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it in his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he saw that it, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Jesus knows that all things are now accomplished. Psalm 69.21 says, they gave me also gall for my meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Jesus said in verse 28, I thirst. And in fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 69, the Scriptures tell us that they gave Him vinegar to drink. This was the last prophecy to be fulfilled concerning Jesus Christ's first advent. Following this fulfillment, the Scriptures tell us in verse 30, He cries out, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. If you typically underline in your Bibles or make notes in your Bible, I would encourage you to put a mark next to that word, gave up the ghost. Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Paul told the Roman church in Romans 5.15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. He would go on to say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we think of all these passages, we recall back in John chapter 10, as Jesus Christ spoke of Himself being the Good Shepherd and Him caring for the sheep, He would say this in verses 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The testimony of God's Word throughout the ages regarding the redemption of mankind can be traced through the concept of a gift. God gave His only begotten Son to become a man. This man was tempted on all points like as we and yet without sin. Jesus came to this earth by the very will of God, not the will of man, and He was given to this earth. In like manner, Jesus gave His life upon the cross of Calvary, knowingly and willingly bearing the shame, and finally, yielding His life, giving His life an atonement for sins. Consequently, just as God gave His only begotten Son to this earth to serve and to minister and to declare the salvation of men, just as God gave His Son to die upon the cross. Just as Jesus gave His life upon the cross, gave up the ghost, yielded it, so too, God has now given us eternal life through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was not taken on the cross that day. Let's be clear about that. Jesus was not killed. His life was not taken He gave His life on the cross that day. He yielded His life on the cross that day. He went to the cross willingly. He didn't fight. He took the scourging willingly. He didn't fight. He took and bore our sin willingly. He didn't complain. He didn't fight. He didn't resist. And He gave His life when the time had come when it was finished. When the work was done, He yielded His life for you and for me. Your Savior cares. 
He cared enough that in the very final moments of his life, he even spent the time and effort necessary to be sure his mother was cared for. Your Savior's gift. The gift that was given. We even considered it this morning in our Lord's Supper observance as Troy prayed and thanked God for the blood of Jesus Christ which was spilt for us. He emphasized your Savior's care, your Savior's gift. Following Jesus' death, many things were still happening. One of those things was the death of the other two men, the men that hung with Jesus, these other prisoners. Jesus had given up the ghost. The other men still clung to life. And this presented a problem. See, the day was Friday. At sundown, the Sabbath would begin. This was not just any Sabbath. This was the holy Sabbath of the Passover. This was the Sabbath that inaugurated the the Passover week. This was an important day. It was essential to Jewish law that these men not be dying on the cross during the Sabbath holy day. The Old Testament said, Cursed is a man that, that is hung upon a tree. They would not allow a man to be hung on the cross on this holy day. And so the Jews petitioned to have these men's legs broken. We understand how the cross works. As you're hung upon the cross, the weight of your body is pulling your arms down or pulling your body down. Your arms can't move and so your lungs constrict. In order to breathe, you have to push yourself up, get a breath, and then you can let yourself down again. Of course, the idea was that you do this until you have no strength left and then you suffocate and you die. But they needed to hasten the process. So they broke the legs of these men so that they could no longer push themselves up so that they would suffocate faster. The soldiers came to do the work at the approval of Pilate. And the Scriptures tell us they broke the legs of the first man. They broke the legs of the second man. Verse 33 says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already, they break not His legs. David, in Psalm 34, verse 20, prophesied that the Messiah would have no bones broken in His body. And we see that this prophecy was fulfilled as it was written that no bones would be broken. To make sure that He was dead, however, the Scriptures tell us that they pierced His side. And when they pierced his side, verse 34 tells us what came out was blood and water. When a man dies, those two elements separate. So the fact that blood and water came out reveals to us that he was in fact dead. But this isn't just an act. It's another fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 12 verse 10 tells us this. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him 
as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, this is just a partial fulfillment. The complete fulfillment of this prophecy will be on the day where Jesus Christ returns, his second advent. But as we look in verses 36 and 37, we see that these were, were recognized as prophetic fulfillments. Verse 36, For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Verse 37, And again another Scripture saith, They shall look upon him whom they pierced. As we consider these events, the purpose of their accounting is explicitly stated in verse 35. And he that saw it, that being John, bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith truth, that ye might believe. It is that ye might believe. The whole point of the book of John is that ye might believe. The whole object of the historical record is that ye might be one of those who doesn't sit in darkness, but rather that ye would accept the light of the Gospel as told in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, as we finish the record of John in John 19, we see that there were two men introduced. One of them we've seen before. The other one not, we have not seen before. But we're going to look at these two men, and what I'd like us to see as we close is their response. We've seen your Savior's care. Jesus Christ cares. We've seen your Savior's gift. Let's see the response of these men, and then we'll apply that to our own hearts and lives this evening. The first response we see is a man named Joseph. Look with me in verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. We're introduced to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27, verse 57, tells us that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, was a rich man. Mark chapter 15, verse 43, tells us that he was an honorable counselor which also waited for the kingdom of God. It is quite possible that he was a member of the Sanhedrin council. It was most assuredly, he was most assuredly a man of power and of stature in the Jewish government, in the Jewish religious government system. He was a man of honor. He was a man of reputation. Joseph had, according to verse 38, been a secret follower of Jesus. But you know, the time had come where a secret following was not sufficient anymore. He went and he besought Pilate for the body of Jesus and gave him a garden sepulcher which had never been used in order to bury Jesus. Since the preparation for the Sabbath was at hand, they needed a place to put him quickly. They put him in this sepulcher, one that had never been used. What we see in Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was willing to sacrifice his reputation and possibly even his position as a high counselor in order to honor and to worship and to revere and to serve the true and living God, Jesus Christ. We see another man, however, in this passage as well. His name is Nicodemus. We've come across a man named Nicodemus before. And as we look in verse 39, notice what it says. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. This is the same Nicodemus that we saw way back in John chapter 3. The same Nicodemus who came and asked Rabbi Jesus some questions in the night. That Nicodemus, we recall from John 3, didn't leave necessarily believing. 
He did not make a declaration of his faith that evening as Jesus Christ was explaining to him that he must be born again. As we walk through the book of John, we see Nicodemus come up another time. In John chapter 7, verse 50, Nicodemus pacifies the Jews in their anger against the Lord. He calms them down in John chapter 7, verse 50. In verse 39, we see Nicodemus bearing precious and expensive ointments to help Joseph of Arimathea dress and anoint the body of Jesus Christ for burial. Had they known each other? Well, we know Nicodemus was a a leader of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, most likely on the Sanhedrin council. Probably these men knew each other very well. Both of them followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38 this, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when He cometh in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. You know, perhaps up to this point, Joseph and Nicodemus were able to worship worship Jesus in spirit and in truth without openly declaring their allegiance. Perhaps to this point, they felt some level of justification in concealing their faith. Or perhaps they, while knowing that what Jesus had said previously, were never truly willing to accept the consequences of saving faith. But, At this point, that's not what we see. At this point, we see two men who have given up. They have hazarded their careers, their reputations, possibly even their wealth to give Jesus Christ the honor that is due unto their name. These two men give a glaring example of what Jesus Christ was speaking of in Matthew chapter 10. A bold example of what what Jesus Christ was preaching in Mark chapter 8. That when a man seeks Christ, he must be willing to seek Him at the expense of any earthly connection. At the expense of any earthly um, priorities. That nothing can be above Jesus Christ in priority for the disciple of Jesus Christ. That is an important element of the Gospel. question is then, how do we respond to Jesus Christ? What is your response? Look at me in verses 38 to 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus and set, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where He was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus therefore because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Every man Every woman, every child needs what Jesus has to offer. 
We are all sinners, and by virtue of our sin, we have fallen short of God's perfect standards. We know according to the Word of God that the consequence for this sin is death and hell. Eternal punishment and separation from God in a place known as the lake of fire. No one can get to heaven on their own. Riches can't get us there. Good works can't get us there. But regardless of the good we can do, see, we still have to pay for the bad that we have done. And yet, as we look at the event that we've considered these past three weeks, it is the event that became the remedy for our problem, for our situation. To do for us what we could not do ourselves. And like Joseph of Arimathea, or like Nicodemus, the one who came to him by night, it is the responsibility of every man to respond to Christ. It is the responsibility of every man to place Christ higher than mother or father, than brethren, than sisters, than brothers, than job, than reputation. And we saw that no man who loves the things of this world more than the things of Christ can be his disciple. Now for some, then, belief means sacrifice. I talked to a man a couple of weeks ago. He had been saved out of the Catholic Church. And he said when he got saved... Everything changed in his family. His family was devastated by his conversion. He said he, they won't speak to him anymore. They don't believe he's on his way to heaven anymore. He's not a part of the church. He's been rebaptized. He's now an outcast of the family. But you know, Jesus Christ said that no man who's not willing to leave father and mother and brethren is worthy of me. There's a man who was willing to give up his family for Christ. Some of us may have had to sacrifice other things when we came to Christ. Some of us may have had to sacrifice our entire group of friends. Some of us may have had to sacrifice amusements and hobbies that defined our lives. Some of us may have had to sacrifice a job that we could not in good conscience continue working following our salvation. But you know, for others, there's not a whole lot of sacrifice. We see the children that are saved at a young age. Christian families. Thank God they don't have to sacrifice much. They didn't have to sacrifice their family or their career opportunities or anything of the sort. And so, salvation doesn't demand sacrifice, but what it does demand is the heart of one who is willing to sacrifice. A heart of humble, sacrificial faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But let me ask you something else this evening. Those who are in the room listening this evening are all believers. I know each of your testimony. However, there may be some listening on the internet to the sound of my voice, who are not believers. But let me ask you something if you're a believer this evening. When you came to Jesus Christ, you came with a heart of willingness. You had placed all things at a lower priority than Jesus Christ. 
We know that because you were saved. And that's a requirement. That's an expectation. That's a part of what it means to believe. Have you taken some of those things back? Have you taken some of those things that you were willing to to yield for Christ? And have you pulled some of those back into your life? Part of the reason for the Lord's Supper as we observed it this morning was a memorial. A memorial of that which Jesus Christ has done. And see, when we remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross, when we remember that moment where we accepted Christ as our Savior, where we put that faith in Him, where we believed on Christ, where we placed our full trust in Him alone, it should remind us of the faith. It should remind us of the sacrifices of Jesus Christ on the cross. It should remind us why we're here. And it should renew in our hearts the necessity of serving Him with everything that we have. The realities of Jesus Christ's care, the realities of Jesus Christ's gift should compel our response It should not simply be that of gratitude in word, but gratitude in deed. Like with Joseph, like with Nicodemus, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ calls upon us to be sacrificial as well. To lay aside those elements of our lives that would seek to draw us away from God and His Word and to pursue Him with absolute loyalty. In the words of our morning sermon this morning in 1 Corinthians, it should compel us to grow up to a mature faith. May God help us to respond properly to Him today. May God help us not simply um, those who are unbelievers to respond in faith and to salvation, but may God help us as believers as well to respond to Him in that faith that says, God, You must increase. I must decrease. Let's pray together.